You're listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Dominic Meisters. Welcome to the conversation. In today's episode, we're here with Professor uh, Farida Banda, who is the Professor of Law at SOAS University of London and author of Women, Law and Human Rights, an African Perspective. Today, we're going to be talking about the Maputo Protocol and family rights. So thank you, Professor Banda, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Could you give our listeners a bit of a background as to what the Maputo Protocol or the Protocol to the African Charter on Human and People's Rights and the Rights of Women in Africa? Could you give us a little bit of a background as to what this actually is? Okay. Well, all it is is a human rights treaty, and it's a human rights treaty that was drafted initially by African women um, who thought it was important to have a regional instrument that spoke to the needs of African women because there was already an international human rights treaty um, adopted by the United Nations state parties called um, CEDAW, which stands for the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And so a group of women, uh, civil society, I think led by Wilduff initially, got together and said that they thought it was important to draft an instrument that spoke to the specific needs. So, for example, issues around polygyny, issues around family, which I think we'll be exploring in a little more detail in a minute, um, and to draft an instrument that African states could ratify um, and hopefully try to implement in a way that, that they hadn't always managed in terms of implementing CEDAW um, or the human rights treaties. And specifically, it was directed and targeted almost like a spotlight on women so that there could be no excuse for saying, oh, but we're dealing with um, important issues, which is what always happens with human rights. They're pressing issues, issues of state. Um, and so if you have an instrument that is targeted either expressly at children or persons with disabilities or migrant workers, then that actually forces um, governments to address the needs of those particular groups. And they had been neglected, not just women, but children as well. You've mentioned CEDAW. Are there distinctions to be made between the Maputo Protocol? Because if it's a regional and, as you're saying, a bit more context-specific, mm-hmm. could you explain some of the distinctions which are maybe more African-relevant? Well, I think one of the primary things to, to remember is that CEDAW um, was adopted, that is um, accepted and taken up as a formal human rights treaty in 1979. Um, and... The African Protocol is 2003, and so you'll be surprised how much knowledge had been gained between 79 and 2003 about the specificities of um, the ways that um, women are discriminated against. So to a certain extent, CEDAW feels like a bit like the next generation of telephones, uh, which I believe is what uh, young, my, my, 12, my 11-year-old daughter, is, a 10-year-old daughter is primarily focused on, uh, which is this issue of uh, generations of telephones. So let's just say um, if CEDAW was a telephone of your choice, version 8, uh, the African Protocol would be version 10. And so what new features does it have? And so the new features it has, it builds on version 8, obviously, CEDAW, but it adds loads of things that aren't in CEDAW. So for example, it has provisions on 
female genital mutilation, FGM. And I like the way that it deals with female genital mutilation because for so long I think the focus has been rightly on prevention. But there has been a neglect and almost a forgetting of those women and girls who've already been cut. So the African Protocol in Article 5 um, directs governments to think about rehabilitating and providing uh, medical services for women who've already been cut. I think it speaks to the specificities of the African situation in Articles 10 and 11 in terms of women in armed conflict. And so it does a really good job of merging what some people might think of as um, international humanitarian humanitarian laws, the law that deals with issues of conflict and times of war, um, and also addresses refugee women. It does a wonderful job, I think, in terms of Article 12 on education, on addressing um, an issue that comes up a lot, actually, in our schools and universities, which is sexual harassment, specifically against the girl child. And I think one of the first cases is Hasanenke. It's a Zambian case about a teacher who was harassing and uh, uh, sexually assaulted his student. Um, and the Zambian government, and specifically Ministry of Education, was said to be responsible for the fact that they had failed to protect this child um, from sexual harassment by the teacher. And it's one of the cases that actually cites um, this particular provision of the women's, I mean, the, of CEDAW. And the other thing that the African Protocol does, which I think is really important, it talks specifically about women's right to housing. And women's right to housing is not linked to their husbands. I mean, CEDAW also talks about discrimination irrespective of marital status. But I like the fact that um, the right to housing can be whether you're widowed, divorced, um, single, never married, because yet again, um, I think there's another Botswana case, uh, there's a case against Bot in Botswana um, about a woman not being allowed to be on the de on the register of deeds in terms of having bought a piece of prop in a, a bought property with her husband and that seems really unfortunate uh, because you know you buy a piece of property and you yourself are treated as property or you buy a piece of land or you buy property rather and you yourself are almost treated as the kind of property of the husband whose name is registered on the deeds but not you which seems problematic and obviously that was said to be discriminatory by the, by the Botswana courts or is it Swazi? And so the other thing that I think the African Protocol does really well is something that is um, now called intersectionality, which is a recognition that um, women do not come in one size or shape. We're many shapes and sizes, and we have different issues that affect us. So earlier I mentioned uh, disabilities. So the African Protocol also identifies the importance of ensuring that women with disabilities do not experience violence or discrimination. Also older women, um, and I think now there's a separate protocol on older women, which is great, and also women in distress. And I suppose the last provision that would be worth mentioning is the African Protocol is the first human rights treaty in the world to actually expressly um, permit abortion or termination of pregnancies in certain circumstances. And it's, uh, it's, you know, when you consider the state of reproductive rights and specifically the case law that's coming through on abortion globally, it is a huge gain that we have. And the drafting of it, I think, is a really good job um, because it speaks of a woman's right 
uh, to access contraception, a woman's right to know the status of her, her partner, um, a woman's right to termination. And I think the drafting is actually uh, uh, better than CEDAW, which is not, CEDAW doesn't have an abortion provision, although CEDAW is working through its general recommendations to try to see that women are given access should they need um, terminations. Because CEDAW is on a uh, model of um, sameness with men, whereas the African Protocol speaks specifically of a woman's right so it's the woman's right to choose and the woman's right to access contraception without reference to a man. And I always illustrate this by saying if you have bacon and eggs for breakfast, um, and I understand the people who don't eat bacon, so you would probably p pick a piece, you know, some, I don't know, another animal. Um, lamb, I had lamb um, borovos this morning, it's very good too. And you ask yourself, who gives, well, who, what is the greatest sacrifice? the egg or the, the lamb that died so you could have your lamb borovos in the morning? And the answer clearly is the chicken can lay, can lay another egg, but the lamb is gone. That's how it, you know, it, it finds itself on your plate. So using this as an analogy for reproductive rights, I think women are the lambs. So in reproductive rights, women are the ones who bear the disproportionate burden of bearing children. You know, so two people may have sex, but actually only one person gets pregnant. Only one person has to go through nine months of carrying a child and giving birth to it. Um, and arguably both are, are, are should nurture the child, um, but disproportionately um, many houses are female-headed households, which suggests that the weight is not equally borne. And so the reproductive burden and joy um, is important to emphasize is born primarily by women. And so I think it is important that the African Protocol speaks of the fact that it is women who have the right to choose because women are the ones who are going to carry the can ultimately. So talking about this woman's right aspect as opposed to trying to do the sameness, taking it back to things like housing and moving slightly outside of the more contentious abortion matters, you said that there's no link to the husband. Why is this actually important? Important because what are some of the intricacies? Why, for example, did the Maputo Protocol take this approach? Well, in Article 14 specifically, where they speak about a woman's right to contraception, a woman's right, you know, to, to all of this, um, I suppose in all human rights treaties, there is an element of comparator uh, that is needed. And it's not perfect by any means, the African Protocol. I mean, I think um, you and I were chatting earlier about nationality. And I think in articles, uh, well, one of the articles in the, in the protocol, you know, the the nationality is left to um, governments or national states, which actually isn't the way that inter that international human rights law is supposed to work. Um, you know, national law is supposed to yield to uh, treaty obligations, and I think nationality has been proven to be problematic for women. Now, many years ago, UNHCR did a survey where many states—I mean, not all of them—you know, a sizable number of states still had uh, discriminatory nationality laws. And the discrimination pertained to either women's inability to pass on their nationality to their spouses, and this is usually in marrying men in a heteronormative system, um, but also the fact that the nationality of the child was said, quote-unquote, to follow the nationality of the husband, which is problematic on a direct discrimination point in terms of why cannot a woman pass on her nationality, um, 
and it suggests implicitly that men who marry women are there to exploit them for their nationality, so women need to be protected from these shady characters. So it's about weakness, women's weakness, and I think if I was a man, I'd be slightly insulted as well, that all I want her for is her passport. Um, but I think it's also more problematic because if you marry somebody who is stateless or who's an asylum seeker, then you may go from a person who has a nationality, yes, mm. to yourself being stateless, to your, you know, and to the children. And it's just like, well, how, is, how does this make sense? And technically, you can't make people stateless, so arguably you could argue to your state uh, that, you know, I, 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 you can't strip me of my nationality because I, I, would, I would be stateless, and this would be clearly a, a, you know, a violation of international law. But that this conversation has to be had is deeply problematic. And again, we go back to this idea of um, women being the disproportionate uh, primary caregivers, um, disproportionate because obviously there are many men who do look after their children, and you haven't seen him for many years and you need to travel. I think there's a Libyan case on this, um, and she hadn't seen him for many years. You know, daughter gets a great scholarship, time to go. She has to go find a passport. What does she do? Trapes around looking for dad. Um, you know, so dad can sign off on her passport papers uh, so she can, you know, then access the scholarship. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's perverse, yeah. you know, that you do the work and somebody else, you know, reaps the rewards or blocks your ability. And I think it can also be a form of, I suppose, lead to a form of psychological violence because somebody can use this power over you, you know, the ability to consent or to withhold consent to severely limit your um, freedom of movement. And that can't be right. So the nationality laws, I think, need to be rethought. So how then is the Maputo Protocol dealing with the cultural aspect and the protection of women, especially in an African context? Because a lot of what you're saying is also, it's like, no, but culturally this is our way of doing things. How do you reconcile this? Because this is sometimes used as an easy justification mm -hmm. for potentially discrimination. Okay. Well, I think the, the, Maputo, Proto, uh, the Maputo Protocol is, is drafted really, really well in this case because it specifically says, you know, both in the preamble and also my, one of my favourite provisions, and I was cited by, by title, by article, Article 17, which is on women have the right to participate in the construction of cultural values and positive cultural values. So I don't think that as Africans we've ever kind of shied away from our cultures, plural, um, nor, do, nor are we ashamed of them. I think our cultures are rich. I think our cultures are dynamic. I think our cultures are what makes us make us. But I do not think that our cultures are ones that ask us to be disrespectful of each other, that ask us to degrade each other, that asks us, you know, to treat each other with our dignity and respect. I think it's the complete opposite of that. So I think it's really sad and somewhat ironic that the misinterpretations of culture have almost become the ones that everybody treats as normative. And I think as Africans, we owe ourselves, you know, the self-respect of saying, actually, no, we celebrate the positive cultural values, you know, issues of kindness and of connectedness and of generosity and of support. Those are positive African cultural values, and absolutely we need to keep those, those that rely on the oppression of others were never our values to start. Do you see any examples where those particular African values you've just been discussing are being promoted within this protocol? 
either implicitly or explicitly? Well, Article 17, you know, the requirement for that. And I like the fact that disability was taken, I mean, there's Article 18.3 of the African Charter, which lists, you know, which is important, or Article 18 of the African Charter. Um, but specifically, I think the inclusion of issues of sustainable development. The other thing that I love is article uh, one of the articles on work. I won't keep, keep citing numbers, <laughs> but it is 13 in case you're interested, um, which specifically talks about the importance of valuing the work that women do in the home. You know, because for so long, the work that women did was considered to be, quote unquote, women's work and therefore without value. And I think this is an international issue rather than a, a, a regional issue only. I mean, Anne Oakley in the 70s, 80s did this book, Housewife for Housework, you know, about the lack of value of women's work. And this was in the English, in, in, the, in, you know, in, the, in the British context, yeah, in the British context. Um, and that started a campaign, Wages for Housework. But I think the way that this lack of value for the work that women do in the home manifests is often at death and divorce, specifically divorce, where the distribution of property in many legal systems is based on this idea of contribution or point to what you paid for which is how it was initially interpreted in one um, Kenyan case law, uh, which led Celestine Yamoumsembe to write one of my favorite articles, sitting on her husband's shoulders with her hands in his pockets. So when they were divorcing and she said, well, may I have a sh you know, share of our family property, an equal share of our family property, the judge said, well, he went to work, he paid the mortgage, he did this, he did that, what did you do? And now you want to sit on his shoulders and dip into his pockets. You know, you want to unjustly enrich yourself, I suppose, if we want to use the term of um, from contract law. And that's deeply problematic because disproportionately, again, you know, because of, you know, structural discrimination, which means women are less likely to have the same access to education that men and boys are. They're less likely to get the kind of jobs and employment opportunities that men and boys are. That marriage becomes, for many women, the only, you know, viable career choice. And to actually perform your part of the marital bargain that has been struck, which is you will look after the home, um, you will bear and rear the children, and you will do a great job of it, but when he tires of you, he can kind of slough you off like a snake shedding its skin and slither away into the long grass leaving you, you know, with absolutely nothing. It strikes me as a complete, you know, it, it's, it's a travesty. How then has the inheritance issue because obviously that's it's part of the death side of things as well but also in terms because you mentioned divorce as well how then are we protecting women when it comes to marriage and inheritance that's getting a lot better but when i say getting a lot better i mean getting a lot better normatively in terms of the laws i think many law, many states now i know my own zimbabwe um you know passed laws on um, inheritance and i think kenya has now as well and um, everybody's been redoing their constitutions, so just so the South Africans know, yours is no longer the sexy one in town. <laughs> uh, better ones are available, so if we were talking about telephones, numbers, South we're Africa is in model two <laughs> and everybody else is on 12 now, so get with the program, people. Um, just joking. But, you know, I think many new constitutions now speak of the importance of equality, of non-discrimination, and they no longer ring fence customary law um, from scrutiny from the non-discrimination provisions as many did um, for many years ago, which was the justification for the continuation of discriminatory inheritance laws. 
And so one sees a lot of case law. I mean, Kenya, you know, Rona and Rono coming through that not only relies on, that relies on international human rights um, to say that women shouldn't be discriminated against. Um, and I think one of the only CEDAW cases that has been brought uh, by or, or against an Africa, I mean, uh, uh, concerning an African country, but not African, an African country, is Tanzania, and it's, an, it's called ES in Tanzania. And it's about two widows um, who are again being stripped of their property and denied, you know, access to land and the husband's property. And CEDAW committee, you know, identified that this was a violation of their rights in terms of discrimination. And CEDAW and the African Protocol are of one mind on this. You know, the customs and practices that constitute uh, or impact on women in a, dis in a discriminatory way should be modified or abolished. So we've already talked about the importance of positive cultural values. So if the cultural values are not positive, then they need to either change. Um, so in South Africa, for example, you have case law that says that the only reason women, and in Zimbabwe too, the only reason women were barred from inheriting is because they were female. And so you can still nominate whoever you want to inherit, but you can't discount somebody just because they happen to be a woman. You know, so yeah. you take the best person to do yeah. the job, and also this happened with the chieftaincy, I think there was a case here, Shilavana. You know, the only reason women couldn't be chieftains or chiefs is because she was a woman, but the community said, no, we think she's good, she'll, she'll, she'll do a good job. Mm -hmm. And that's a really great example, it's one of my favourite examples of the use of positive cultural values, of the importance of participation, of the, the democratisation of the cultural production, I think, is what we're talking about. Yeah. From what I'm, what I'm understanding that you're saying is we're actually seeing positive changes in terms of family. And we're using family life quite broadly, obviously, in terms of marriage, whether it's between a spouse, whether it's between kids, whether it's mm -hmm. between family members. And mm -hmm. um, Is this only because there are laws or is it something more? that's kind of happening, just as a final thought, if yeah, you've got any. I might argue it's in spite of their laws. <laughs> I, my, with age, I grow increasingly sceptical about, I think law is important because I think it sets standards. It gives you uh, a claim, you know, an entitlement. So it's not, you know, I think you're being unfair and it'd be quite nice if you were nice to me. It's I have a right and you have violated that right and I'm going to enforce it. But I think one of the most exciting things, and I notice this every time I come back, the levels of confidence, especially amongst young women, is slightly terrifying, but in a good way. Um, I think the other thing is the civil society on the African continent is second to none. Um, I teach globally. I mean, I teach. It's great to come here to Pretoria to teach, but I teach a lot in Europe as well, in Britain, in London, in Oxford, and I've taught in Oslo several times. And I'm always struck when I come back home how much more African students know about the international human rights system, how many of them are able to speak to their country reports about CEDAW, how many actually know when their countries are reporting on CEDAW, uh, few are able to say they participated in shadow report drafting, many know what was in the concluding observations, whereas, uh, to give an example, this year I spoke to my um, British Human Rights of Women class and I said, well, how many of you knew? And this is a really very educated group of people, you know, I have students from Norway, Sweden, uh, journalists from United Kingdom, and I said, and none of them did. So it seems like we are taking ownership. Absolutely. And I think CEDAW is much more well-known here 
you know, CEDAW as an acronym, I think it's yeah. actually the best known treaty. That's why <laughs> yeah. it's important that we get African protocol out there so yeah. people know that there is a homegrown instrument and that we can start using it and that people can start referring to that and getting a, you know, a sense of ownership and stake and using this to kind of, you know, claim their rights. But I think also the, the spread of um, telephones has been great. And I think the democratization of information, because I think for, two, for so long, governments were the ones who controlled what we knew and when we knew it. And you can actually see uh, what happens when information is freely available and how quickly um, good practice can spread, but also how quickly um, shocking, shoddy, misogynist um, nonsense can also spread. Just as quickly. Sadly. Well, Professor Banda, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been very interesting to talk to you. Great. Thanks for having me. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Dominique Maestras, in conversation with Professor Farida Banda. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore further human rights issues.